Well, good morning again, and, and let me just say welcome right now, not only to those of you who are here in the contemporary service, but also to those of you who are joining us in the traditional sanctuary and via broadcast. I'm glad that we all have the chance to be learning from God's Word together as one church family. And as you're getting settled for the message today, if you have a study guide in your worship bulletin this morning, all of you do have that. If you want to take that out, it's a good place to make some notes as we go along and learn from the Scriptures together this morning. We are continuing today with our Shine series, and as we do that, did you know that we are practicing a Christian tradition that we're observing the traditional Christian season of Epiphany. And Epiphany is a season of the Christian year that's meant for having epiphanies. It's meant for light. It's a season of light and growing and learning about who God is in Jesus Christ. And the passage that we read today from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, the story of Jesus and this miraculous healing, is a perfect passage for helping us see who God is in Jesus Christ. Before we get to that, I just want to begin by thinking with you for a second and ask you to go back in your memory here, if you're my age or older or anywhere near it. Do you remember the first picture of God that you formed in your mind? Do you ever remember sort of having a concrete visual image of what God might look like? I'm going to fess up here that I formed one when I was a little kid. I think I've told you before maybe that we started going to church when I was about five or six years old, and I started learning some things about God, and I made up a picture in my mind. God was a very old man. He had a long white beard. Any of you have this one too? He also had a pointy hat, like a wizard or something like that. That might be unique to me, I understand. My, my God looked like Gandalf, apparently. Uh, and I, have, I don't really know where that image got into my head from, but I can make some guesses. I, I would guess that it came from reading children's stories, from, from storybooks with pictures and powerful characters who have special powers. That was kind of the image of God that I began to form when I was a child. I don't know if any of you formed anything similar at all. I think as we grow into being adults we continue to form images of God. Though they might be a little bit more sophisticated than that, they may or may not be visual images, but we continue to form images of God. I'd like to ask you to think about where those images come from. Where do you think it is that we get the ideas that fill up or give shape to our picture of God? One of the things that might come first to mind, one of the obvious answers is that people around the world begin to develop pictures of God based on a whole variety of world religions, right? People get pictures of God from Islam, from Buddhism, from Judaism, and as also from Christianity. There was a book that was on the New York Times bestseller list not very long ago. It might actually still be hovering on the list somewhere, I'm not sure. The name of the book is called God is Not One, and the subtitle is The Eight Major Religions That Rule the World. And it's a, a, it's a, a great book, actually. That the purpose of the book was to kind of explain how the different world religions portray different pictures of God, how they're not one, how they don't offer the same picture of God, but they offer a picture of God to people all around the world. I think that's where a lot of us, a lot of people around the world get pictures of God. I happened to, to post this question on the table this last week on our, the online extension of our church community, and on the table, some of you uh, joined in on that thread and suggested some answers. Where is it that we get the ideas that form our picture of God? Some of you said, well, like most opinions or beliefs, we start to form that probably from our parents, from things that they tell us, if they tell us anything at all about God. Studies have also shown that children not only form pictures of God based on what their parents do or, or do not tell them, but also simply based on what they see in their parents. Now, what I'm about to say may frighten some of you. It, it scares the heck out of me. Children, studies show, take the attributes they see in their parents and they attribute them to God. Because their parents are authority figures in their lives, at least, you know, for some children, I hear that's true, that parents are authority figures. And God is like the ultimate authority figure, and so they take these attributes and they just amplify them and assign them to God. So we get our pictures of God in some way from their parents, from, from our parents. 
Some of you uh, on the table also suggested that we get our pictures of God from other people also, maybe especially from God people, from religious leaders or people who claim to be religious or to be Christians in particular, because what we see in one another as we are worshipers of God, we begin to believe or just sort of take on assumption that that reflects some of the characteristics of the God that we worship. And it's a very reasonable way to think about this. Also in our culture, we, have, we are not lacking for voices that claim to speak for God, right? Or who tell us what God is like. I think of talk show hosts and best-selling authors, musicians, movies, with all kinds of different images of God. How many of you are planning to watch the Super Bowl later today or at least have it turned on on your TV? Yeah, we, we definitely will. I can almost guarantee you, I'm not quite willing to bet, but I can almost guarantee you that a certain linebacker from Baltimore is going to get in front of a microphone at some point and will have an opportunity to say something about his view of God. And millions and millions of people will be able to listen to that. I saw just this morning, actually, the projection, this might be the most watched television event ever. That's a big pulpit, right? We get our pictures of God from a whole lot of different places. And, and I think realistically, probably what happens is that we don't always pick one source. It's not one thing that gives us our picture of God. But I think in reality, probably a lot of us form a picture of God that is kind of a, a mashup of all these things. We take what feels the best to us or what kind of resonates with us from a variety of sources and make this kind of combo picture of God even if the sources themselves don't really go together very well. Now, if any of you are anything like me at all, somewhere inside you, your brain is going, but, but what's true? <laughs> of all those things, what would we believe that God is really like? And that is exactly what this passage that we read today was written down to try to help us with, to try to portray the biblical picture of God. And so what I'd like to do here this morning is take a few minutes and walk through a couple of key features or events in that passage and see how it is they help us understand the biblical picture of God. The first one, probably the simplest and the clearest one, actually kind of comes from the end of the story. After Jesus has healed this guy, he winds up in a conflict with the Pharisees. So let's kind of take that out for a minute. Jesus has come to this pool of Bethesda. He finds a man lying there who's been paralyzed for 38 years. Can we just stop there for a second? Let's not underestimate that problem. 38 years, four decades of life. I'm 37 years old. I don't know what 38 years old feels like, right? Those of you who have had something happen in your lives for 38 years, I, I, you have, I respect that. I don't even know what that's like yet. That's a long time, four decades of this man's life. He's been lying there by this pool wanting to get better. Jesus comes to him, asks him if he wants to be well. Jesus responds to him by healing him. He, he, he helps him get up after 38 years and walk around. He invites the man to pick up, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. He invites him to live this new life that he's just given him, to walk around, to live with new power, his legs work now, to live with new freedom, to live with new joy, because he can go where he wants to go now. This is a huge deal. This is a major work of God in this guy's life. He picks up his mat, he begins to walk, and he runs into some Pharisees, who are also very concerned about the work of God. And in this case, they are very concerned in particular that Jesus has misrepresented God to this man. They are concerned that he has told him to pick up his mat and carry it around on the Sabbath day, when it is a violation of the Sabbath laws to carry your mat around on the Sabbath day. So they're very concerned about the work of God too, but they don't see a powerful work of God in this man's life. When they look, what they see are important rules being broken. And because these are godly rules, that can't be God. Okay, you see we have a picture of God conflict at the heart of the story. We've got Jesus who has come into this area, proclaiming the kingdom of God is coming in him. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. 
He has, according to the story of Jesus, been baptizing people in the Spirit of God. He has just healed a man in the name of God, and the Pharisees go, that can't be God. There's a significant conflict going on here. And from the Bible's view, the biblical view here is that God in this story is like Jesus and not like the Pharisees. The Bible is claiming that God is one particular thing. God is like this and not like that. But I just want to acknowledge something here with you. That's not obvious. That's not obvious to everybody. It was, it was not obvious to a whole bunch of people living in Jerusalem in that day. Jesus called disciples to himself. So he, got, he gathered lots of crowds. Some people, after they checked things out, actually wanted to become Jesus' disciples. They wanted to understand God in the Jesus way. They wanted to walk and live out life in the Jesus way. But that was not most people. This was not obvious. This is not obvious to most of your friends and neighbors. They do not think of God as being fundamentally like Jesus because we have the human tendency to recreate God in our own image. Have you, you know in the Bible it says, it says that God created human beings in his image. And I heard somebody say once, ever since that day, we've been returning the favor. We've been making God again in our image. This was not obvious to everybody, but this is biblical Christianity, that the character of God is best seen by looking at the revelation of God in Jesus. And we see this in this conflict that arises with the Pharisees over the Sabbath day. And just what is it that God does and wants to have happen in our lives? But I think it actually is illustrated maybe even more powerfully and I think a bit more relevantly to our lives at the beginning of the story in the healing that gives rise to this conflict in the first place. So Jesus comes and he heals this guy, the Bible tells us, at a place that next to a pool called Bethesda. Now this pool of Bethesda was kind of a strange place. It inspired a lot of different superstitious beliefs. Though The waters in the pool of Bethesda would be disturbed from time to time by the pool's own underground water source. It would sometimes bubble up and be disturbed or troubled and move around. And people didn't understand what was going on there, and they imagined that there was a spiritual cause to this, that there was a spirit or an angel that would come and stir the waters, and whoever could get into them first would experience a supernatural healing as a result of this. Now, I have a picture I brought along here, a picture of the Pool of Bethesda. This, this picture, I should just want to tell you up front, is a picture of a large model of the ancient city of Jerusalem. This is not the real city, but it's laid out in such a way that it's real clear to see where stuff is. So there's the Pool of Bethesda right in the middle of the picture. Two things I want you to notice. One is that it is outside the actual walls of the city, which are kind of behind and to the left of the pool. You can see the temple wall is next to it. It's outside those walls, which means that it would a greater variety of religious beliefs and practices would be tolerated here outside the city. Inside the holy city, the, the chief priests and the leaders of the Jewish people would have exercised tighter control over that. That's one thing. The second thing is that right above the Pool of Bethesda on the screen there is something called the Antonia. And the Antonia is a fortress. It was a fortress where Roman soldiers were housed right there at the city of Jerusalem. Not a lot of Jews were happy about that, but that's where the Roman soldiers were. And they had easy access to the Pool of Bethesda and its supposedly supernatural healing powers. And they were from all over the Roman Empire. And they would bring the religious beliefs and practices from their own areas to this place and to this supernatural pool when they would go down there. So kind of a strange place, a whole mix-up of things going on there. And to understand the, the dynamics that are at work there, I just want to explain one thing about ancient Greek and Roman religion. And that is that the religions were very easily mixable. I like to say, in fact, that they were additive. 
And so you could be a worshiper of the Greek god Zeus or the Roman version of that same god whose name was Jupiter. You could worship Zeus, and, and that's okay, and you can make your sacrifices to Zeus. And if next week you felt like it was important for you to worship the goddess Artemis and go make a sacrifice in the Artemis temple, that's okay. You don't have to just pick one. You can add them up. And both Zeus and Artemis are going to be fine. They will not be offended if a little while later you make a trip to Jerusalem and you revere or worship the god of healing, Asclepius, who probably was revered in some way at this pool of Bethesda. That's okay. You can mix them all up. You can add them together. That, was, that is integral to the ancient Greco-Roman picture of God. Now, into this context, into this world, at this place, walks Jesus. Jesus comes up to the pool of Bethesda, a supposed place of healing, and he sees this guy who is clearly in need of healing. He asks him if you want to be well. And then Jesus performs an act of miraculous healing for a guy who needs healing at a place of healing. But he does it completely apart from everything on offer at this location. Right? Jesus heals this guy completely apart from the waters in the pool of Bethesda. Completely apart from the misunderstood movements of the waters in the pool of Bethesda. Completely apart from any reference to any spiritual force that was supposedly troubling the waters there. Completely apart from the foot race that is implied by this man's answer. He says, I'm not well because I never got to the water first. The first one in gets well. Jesus comes to this place of healing, offers miraculous healing completely apart from that. It's a whole different picture of God. And the way that God works in our lives. It, it reminds me of this story that I heard a long time ago from an old missionary who'd been a missionary in India many, many years ago. And he was trying to share the good news of God's grace and power in Jesus Christ with some Hindu priests that he had come to know in the area. And he began to tell them, and they interrupted him very politely, I assume, to tell him that they already believed in Jesus. It's okay. And the, the missionary was very pleased about that. Apparently somebody had been there before him and their work had gone on ahead of him. That's great. To prove it to this missionary, the priest took him back to their temple and they showed him the statue of Jesus in their temple right there alongside about 100 other statues that they honored in their worship. Not exactly what the missionary was going for. And it seems strange when we're able to see it at a cultural distance. But I wonder, I, I, I've, I'm afraid that we do the same thing. That we form our picture of God from a whole variety of different sources. We, we form our, our picture of what power really looks like, whether we call it God or not. We form our picture of what blessedness really looks like, what joy and happiness mean, what salvation is, from a whole variety of other sources, not least of which is probably our own imagination. And then we just we call it good. Or, or we bring a little Jesus along the side of all that, or maybe sprinkle some Christian language over the top of it, and imagine that that's Christianity. But when we do that, you're settling for so much less than what God has actually done and is actually doing in Jesus Christ. And in the Bible, story after story after story is written to help us see this. Story after story invites us to see the powerful, renewing, saving, life-giving, life-expanding, world-changing work of God in Jesus Christ. And it is so much better than we imagine. And that it's happening in our world. And that it will happen for all eternity, forever and ever, in our world, in Jesus Christ. Just, just to use the one example of the one story that we read today, just these, these two pieces of this one story. The Bible here invites us to believe that God is such that he cares more about restoring broken people than about legalistic Sabbath keeping. 
And, and it does not mean that God doesn't care about the rhythms of work and rest, about learning and growing and worshiping on the Sabbath and all those values that are appropriate to the Sabbath day. But when you put all this stuff together and how you, how you apply that in your life, well, the picture of what God does and wants is Jesus. That's what this story says. And also it says that the picture of the God, the God whom we know in Jesus Christ is not the God, and this will upset a lot of books and public and pamphlets and stuff, the God who we worship in Jesus Christ is not the God who helps those who help themselves. That's not the God who works in the story. This is not the God who helped the guy who got to the pool first. This is the God who helped the guy who could not help himself. This is the guy who went and restored the guy who had no one. As he said, I have no one to help me. This is the God in Jesus Christ who went and redeemed life right there. You know, I was thinking about this and this invitation that the Bible has to us not to settle for less than the picture of God we see right here in this passage. And it dawned on me that there is a hospital here in the city of St. Paul called Bethesda, right? It's downtown St. Paul. And that means it's nowhere near the city of Jerusalem. It is not next to the pool of Bethesda, but it is called Bethesda. And I looked up a few things about the history. By the way, we have some members of our congregation, former members who were doctors there, a former president of Bethesda Hospital, actually is a member of this congregation, now deceased, who was a great leader in that organization. Bethesda, I looked at the history of this hospital. It was formed in 1880 by the Swedish Lutheran Church under the instigation of a particular Reverend A.P. Monton who worked together with the Tabitha Society. And best I can tell, one of you will correct me after the service, but the Tabitha Society seems to be fought over by the Swedes and the Norwegians, so you guys can figure out who that really was. But they started this hospital, and they ran into some trouble as they got started because they kept helping people who could not help themselves, because they kept helping people who had no one to help them they called these cases charity cases. And the hospital ran into significant trouble in their business model because they were operating too much like Jesus did at Bethesda. Here they are now, 133 years later. I, I honestly didn't know all that history to begin with about 1880 and Reverend Monson, so I looked that up. And while I was doing that, I stumbled across something that I had known long ago in life, the Bethesda Lutheran Communities. These are houses that are dedicated specifically to ministering to and helping people struggling with a whole variety of physical disabilities. And so I kind of clicked around their webpage a little bit. They don't have any locations in Minnesota, but they're in Ohio, where I'm from, in California, where I was an intern pastor many years ago now. And while I was looking around, I found their values, their core values as, as an organization. Core value number one, Christ is preeminent in all that we do. Right? We do this because our God looks like Jesus Christ. And we believe that each person should be treated, each person has inherent value and should be treated with dignity and respect. Because we will help those who cannot help themselves. The picture of God and Jesus Christ is reflected in the life and ministry of this community. This, this stuff's not just a head trip, right? It's not just that you get your, th get your theology right or so you know how to write a textbook on world, world religions. This stuff is meant to change our lives. It, it's supposed to do that. I just hate to think that we would settle for less than this. It breaks my heart to, to know that I do sometimes, that we do settle for less than this. I mean, I, I just don't want a God... I don't want the God who is nothing more than a projection of my own messed up imagination. It's not good enough for me. No offense, but I don't want a God who's a project of your own messed up imagination either. I don't want a God whose dreams and plans for my life are as small and puny and screwed up as my own dreams and plans are for my life. I want to know the God who forgives sin in Jesus Christ. Because I have sins that need to be forgiven. I want to know the God who has the power to defeat the power of sin in my life because I need to be delivered from it. Don't some of you too? I want to know the God who has rolled away, this, rolled away the stone from in front of the tomb on Easter morning, who raised Jesus from the dead and made him both Lord and King because I want to know the power of life in God triumphs over the power of death. 
The death does not have the final answer over our lives anymore. Why are we so tempted to settle for less than that? Jesus asked this guy who was there at the pool of Bethesda, he said, do you, do you want to be well? Seems like such a dumb question. But we get so attached to the stuff that's going on in our lives, whether it's actually making our lives better or not. Do, do you actually want the work of Jesus Christ in your life? Do you want his grace and do you want his power? Because there are a lot of other ways on offer. There really are. There are a lot of other gods out there. We rarely call them gods anymore. It's what makes them so sneaky. There are a lot of other gods out there looking for our allegiance. You know what I mean? There are a lot of other ways to live your life. There are a lot of other places to pin your hopes. There's so many. It's a big temptation. Millions of people, not, not just around the world. There are probably millions of people in the state of Minnesota alone who believe some form of God wants me to be happy. This makes me happy. It must be from God. Without ever looking to see what is the particular abundant life that God has promised us in Jesus Christ. I mean, you face that temptation every day. I know it because I face that temptation every day. And the Bible was put down for us, this story was put down for us today, so we would be reminded that that temptation is nothing more than a temptation to settle for less. It is a temptation to pursue happiness and freedom and joy and a picture of God some other place than the place where God has given it to us. But Jesus is life. And I invite you here on this day to receive that gift, to receive that gift, to walk in Jesus' way, to commit your life to him. Let's do that in prayer together. God, we love you. You're so good. We worship you. We're in this place to lift up your name and lift up the name of Jesus. Not to flatter you, but because it is where life is found, because you have saved us. We worship you, God. And God, I pray that you would give us spiritual strength, the gift of your Holy Spirit. Because God, we are tempted. We look so many other places and we get burned. We, we do it for 38 years. We'll do it on and on. But you come to us, God, and set us free. Turn our hearts to you. Give us life and joy and teach us to walk in your way. In Jesus' name we pray.